In the history of the United States, there have only been 14 farewell addresses from our presidents. After George Washington's brilliant farewell speech, no other president attempted one until Andrew Jackson did 41 years ago. I'm sorry, 41 years after George Washington. Yeah, 41 years ago, wouldn't it be? You're doing your math. Good. You're listening. Good, good. No, it took 41 years for another one to try it after how well George Washington did. Twelve of the 14 farewell addresses have been in the modern era. The shortest presidential farewell was by Bill Clinton. Well, in John chapter 13 through 17, Jesus delivers his farewell address to his disciples. We've been studying it the last few weeks. We'll conclude it tonight. Jesus is leaving his men, but remember, they won't be alone. Another helper, another of the same kind, a helper similar to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will take up where Jesus has left off, training his disciples, building up his church. I like to call the Holy Spirit the super sub. His omnipresence extended Jesus' influence globally and generationally. And the church has continued to expand ever since. In these last few verses of chapter 15, Jesus mentions the helper once again. And that's where I'd like for us to begin. Let's back up a couple of verses. John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father... The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Now remember the Greek word translated helper is parakletos, which means to come alongside to help. I love what A.B. Simpson said about the Holy Spirit. He called him a God at hand, one by our side, one that we may call upon in every emergency. Isn't that great? The Holy Spirit is a God at hand. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. He's by us. He's with us. It is the Holy Spirit who brings to us the presence of Jesus. Think of a talented college basketball player, you know, one of those one-and-done types, who turns pro after his first year. He has raw talent, but he's really an undeveloped big kid is what he is. But he's now suddenly astronomically wealthy by virtue of his talents. But he has few life skills to manage his new fortune. And so what does he do? He hires an agent. And the agent's duty is twofold. He's to protect his client's interests and he's to teach the young man to manage his fame and fortune. He's sort of like a life coach. He's grooming his client for success on and off the court. He's a personal mentor and a handler. And this is the Holy Spirit's job in our lives. As Christians, we've happened upon unprecedented wealth. We've now been given spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. We have gifts and talents that the Lord has given to us, callings and uh, ministries that he's given us to do. In addition, we share in God's glory. But we too lack the wisdom and the skill to make the most of our blessings. We too need a handler, a mentor, a life coach, this becomes the role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit grooms us. He molds us into the image of Jesus. He's teaching us how to handle our newfound blessings gracefully to be a winsome witness for Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit is our paracletus. He comes alongside to help. And at the end of verse 26, it sets out the Holy Spirit's job in a nutshell. Jesus says, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit comes to testify of Jesus. When I grew up, the dean of the late night talk shows wasn't Jimmy Kimmel or even Jay Leno. It was Johnny Carson. You've probably heard of Johnny Carson. Yet a key to Carson's success was a man you never heard of. His longtime producer, Freddie de Cordova. Freddie de Cordova. One night during the filming, the camera panned off the stage and actually focused on Freddie de Cordova. This was both unusual and it was unplanned. And when Freddie realized that he was on the camera, he became furious. He started shouting, no, 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 get the camera on Johnny. He's the star. And this is the attitude of the Holy Spirit. His job is to never attract attention to himself. The Holy Spirit's focus is on Jesus. He puts the spotlight on Jesus. The Spirit is the backstage director. His job is to testify of Jesus, which makes for an interesting observation. It may sound odd, but it's true. A church that's preoccupied with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of Jesus is not being led by the Holy Spirit. This is why some charismatic churches get so wrapped up in the things of the Spirit that they forget about Jesus. They neglect His Lordship. A church that's truly Spirit-led will be all about Jesus. The Holy Spirit will see to it. Well, chapter 15 ends, And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The disciples will also testify of Jesus, and they did largely through the writing of the New Testament. God gave them unprecedented access to Jesus so that they could report later on his life and teachings. And we have that record in the New Testament. Chapter 16 begins. Now these things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Now notice, excommunication from the synagogues would be Jewish persecution. But of course, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Rome will also grow a distaste for Christians. Jesus continues, And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, Jesus is being brutally honest with his disciples. The road ahead will not be easy. Persecution looms. The one consolation is the helper, the Holy Spirit. You know, too often when we talk to a new or a prospective convert to Christianity, we talk to them about the love and the joy and the blessing that they'll find in Christ. But we say nothing about the persecution that's been promised. And yet 2,000 years later, this is still the reality. We shouldn't scare folks needlessly, but Jesus also kept his disciples from stumbling because he was straightforward with them about what lay ahead. 
He explained to them both the nature of the persecution and how to respond. Here Jesus tells them that their fellow Jews will consider killing a Christian a favor to God. If you remember, this was exactly the attitude of one Rabbi Saul in Acts chapter 9. It's interesting, push ahead 300 years. In 325 AD, a council of 318 church leaders met in the Persian town of Nicaea. They met to nail down the doctrine of the deity of Jesus. They were responding to decades of false doctrine. The creed that they produced is probably the most definitive statement on the deity of Jesus ever written. In it, Jesus is said to be very God of very God. Nicaea was a celebration. It was a a grouping of all the stars of Christianity. But these were stars that had been forged in the fire. For the three previous centuries, the church had been an underground movement. It had basically been persecuted. Believers had lived and the church had grown in the crosshairs of Roman belligerents. It was just prior to the council in Nicaea in the early 4th century A.D., The emperor Constantine had become a Christian, and he had legalized Christianity. It was at Nicaea for the first time in 300 years, the 300 years of Christian history, church leaders were suddenly able to gather openly without fear of reprisal. Here's a moment where you really wish you could have been there. Imagine being among the men in attendance that day. There were 318 delegates from all around the world. These were the pastors, the bishops of the church. There was a pastor there from Egypt who had one eye. The Romans had plucked out his other eye, plucked it right out of the socket when he refused to renounce his loyalty to Jesus. Three men had ugly scars crisscrossing their faces from the persecution they'd received. A few of the pastors limped on one leg. Most everyone in the room had lost an appendage of some sort, an arm, a hand, a finger, an ear, when they refused to renounce Jesus. A lot of the pastors had burn marks from scalding oil. And every man in the room, his back was was crisscrossed with scars from various scourgings. You see, these men had weathered decades of persecution. Members of their churches had been slaughtered by the gladiators and fed to the lions. These leaders were proof of Christianity's triumph. As Jesus had said here in John 15, the road would be hard, but the helper will assure that Jesus' disciples should not be made to stumble. And indeed he did. Verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled my heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus' departure meant the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And even though it was hard for them to grasp at the time, Jesus knew that this would be an advantage. 
The man, Christ Jesus, was limited to one place at one time. The Holy Spirit would be with all believers at all places at all times. For Christianity to go global, it was necessary for Jesus to be replaced by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful and true are the words of St. Augustine when he prayed, You ascended from before our eyes, and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. And of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says of the Spirit, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus upset a lot of apple carts. He really changed the rules of religion. Jesus redefined sin. He unveiled true righteousness, and he redefined judgment. See, now it was the Holy Spirit's job to convince the world that Jesus was right and that everyone else had been wrong. His job was to convict the world first of sin. Because they do not believe in me. Understand this. In Judaism, sin was the violation of rabbinical rules. Sin was a code infraction. It was a breach of law. But the Holy Spirit redefines sin as an affront to a person. That person being Jesus. See, sin is the rejection of Jesus. It's more than just breaking God's law. It's breaking God's heart. It's saying no to Jesus. Sin is the rejection of Jesus. It's the breach of his love. Jesus bore our sins on his shoulders. Now the only unpardonable sin is the sin of spurning our Savior. He also convicts the world of righteousness. He says, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Remember the Pharisees stressed outward righteousness. Theirs was a paltry, stilted legalism. It was all about good deeds and rituals and the like. But Jesus exhibited a new brand of righteousness. His life was a ballet of beauty and truth. An opus of love and inward purity. It was a spiritual righteousness. When the disciples looked at Jesus for the first time, they saw true righteousness. But it was something they could never imitate. See, righteousness is not a dance that you can choreograph and teach. It's not a step-by-step approach. I could never be a great dancer because I don't have the rhythm. You can't live out what you don't have in you. And this is the key to righteous living. The life Jesus lived, he plants inside us. The Spirit makes me truly righteous from the inside out. Jesus went to the Father while the Spirit came to dwell in our hearts. And then the Spirit convicts the world of judgment. And he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. We live in a world where often the wicked prosper. And tragically, the good guys win. The good guys sometimes wind up on the short end of the stick. We would all like for God to judge people on an individual, case-by-case basis, would we not? But here's what God has done. God has heaped up all of man's sin into one pile. And with one bold stroke, he has settled the score for all time. Rather than deal with sin on a person-by-person-by-person basis, he's taken all of our sin, and he's piled it up. 
and he's put it on the shoulders of his only son. On the cross, God declared the world to be guilty. Every sin was placed on Jesus. On the cross, sin was sentenced to death. The price that Jesus paid to forgive us and to defeat our accuser was paid for on the cross. That's where sin was judged. And the judgment that is yet to come is really just a formality. It's just the implementation of the judgment that occurred at the cross. Have you accepted that judgment? If not, you'll be judged for your own sins. Today, the Spirit is grabbing people's hearts and bringing people under the shadow of the cross. And so the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus knew the disciples were in overload at this point. He wanted to tell them more, but at the moment they lacked the ability to digest. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. He'll become our teacher. We have earthbound minds, whereas God's truth is heavenly. We need the Holy Spirit's help to understand. You know, it's interesting to compare chapter 15, verse 13, with, but, and go back to John chapter 14, verse 26. For there Jesus promised the Spirit would bring to their remembrance what Jesus spoke, the Gospels. Here he will guide them into all truth, the epistles, and then he will tell them things to come, the revelation. Put the Lord's promises here all together in the Spirit's insights constitute what we call the New Testament. In addition, verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And this is important. The Holy Spirit's message is always in harmony with the teaching and nature of Jesus. Always remember, the Spirit of God always syncs up with the Son of God. This is why if somebody comes to you with some kind of weird, preposterous idea that violates the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, you know it's not of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit comes to testify of Jesus, to guide us into all truth, the truth that Jesus taught us. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. As the Lord said, He takes what is mine and declares it to you. He picks up where Jesus left off. He says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now this little while, interval, that Jesus mentions here could have two meanings. It may refer to the three days between his death and resurrection, or it could be the time between Jesus' ascension and the rapture. Don't get tripped up by the phrase, little while. With God, time is relative. In light of eternity, 2,000 years is but a nanosecond. Ever notice how 30 minutes in a dentist chair or 30 minutes on a treadmill feels like a month? Whereas 30 minutes with your sweetheart feels like seconds, time is always relative. Verse 17, 
Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. They were really confused. But because of pride, no one wanted to appear dense or stupid. So no one asked. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He's obviously speaking of his crucifixion and then his resurrection. He says, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. A woman with four or five kids is proof of what Jesus is saying here. She kept going back for more. She's had four or five kids. Obviously, she has easily forgotten the agony of childbirth. The glee that follows the birth of a baby makes all that grunting and hurting and pushing. All that went into the baby getting there, it makes it no big deal. It really is amazing when you think about it. I don't think there's any experience in life where the pendulum swings quite so far so fast. One moment, a delivering mom is screaming, never again. Then five seconds later, that baby arrives, and the very same woman is in sheer elation. This was the same sort of swing the disciples experienced that first Easter morning when they went to the tomb to anoint a corpse, but instead discovered a risen Lord. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Verse 23, and in that day you will ask me nothing. In other words, all your questions will be answered. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I'm sure they had prayed to the Father. But never in the name of the Son. They had never trusted Jesus to intercede for them. And yet after his ascension to heaven, this will become his chief ministry. Today, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He is the one who takes our request to God's throne. And if Jesus takes on that responsibility, why would anyone want to pray through the saints or through Mary? Why would either of them have more clout than God's sinless son? That's what I want to know. As a matter of fact, to pray through Mary or to pray through the saints, as the Catholic Church teaches, is an insult to Jesus. You're saying they have more clout than God's son? We've been instructed in the scriptures to pray through the name of Jesus. The saints and Mary aren't listening to our prayers. Right now, they're before the throne of God, praying and giving Jesus praise. It's Jesus' job to intercede for you and me. 
These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. The time is coming when they'll be able to understand. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Now this helps us understand the intercessory ministry of Jesus. When Jesus intercedes for you and me, it's not as if he ha- he's having to overcome a reluctance on the Father's part. The Father wants to bless us. What a comforting word we have here where he says, the Father himself loves you. When Jesus intercedes for us, he's not twisting the Father's arm. He's not trying to get the Father to do something for us that he doesn't really want to do. He, he already wants to bless us. He loves us. Jesus gives us access to God. He doesn't change the Father's heart toward us. He's always loved us. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? You get the sense they're pretending to know more than they actually do. And here Jesus challenges them. He says, are you guys really ready to face the difficulties, the trials, the persecutions that are yet to come? Verse 32, for indeed the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own, and will leave me alone. At that moment, the disciples sounded so confident. But soon they'll abandon Jesus. They'll be scattered, and their confidence will be shattered. And yet Jesus remains assured, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Jesus will never be completely abandoned. His Father was with him. But Jesus will be betrayed by these self-confident disciples. They will abandon him in his hour of need. They'll be scattered. Only his father will be faithful. And we too, if we follow Jesus, we too will have our trials. For Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Life in this world is not all sunshine and smooth sailing. In the world, you will have tribulation. How's that for a promise? You should cut out and stick on your refrigerator. It's a promise. For a follower of Jesus, this world is hostile territory. We're guaranteed to take some licks and absorb some jabs. At times, we feel like the devil's dartboard. But in the midst of this tribulation, Jesus says, be of good cheer. Why? Because he has promised us his perfect peace. Here's a great definition for peace. It's knowing that you possess adequate resources. Peace is knowing that you possess adequate resources. 
Peace is knowing that I've got whatever I need for the challenges I face. It's the assurance that I can tackle life head on in Christ Jesus. Notice too, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. When the great French reformer Theodore Beza was brought before the king, he made the statement, Sire, it is truly the lot of the church to endure blows and not to strike them. But please remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. The church has overcome the world. Protestant reformers in England, they had a motto that they lifted from the burning bush passage in Exodus. Nevertheless, it was not consumed. That's how they viewed themselves. That's a fitting addendum to every chapter of church history. Nevertheless, the church was not consumed. Why? Because Jesus promised us that we would overcome. Though the world beats at us, though it rips us apart, we're not consumed. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated all the forces that had nailed him to the cross. And we too are overcomers when we put our trust in him. Well, chapter 17 begins. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said. And John 17 is often called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. For this is what Jesus prays just prior to his arrest. In fact, this prayer that we're about to study is the prelude to the prayer in Luke chapter 22 that Jesus concludes, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus pours out his heart in this prayer. And by its end, his pores are oozing sweat like great drops of blood. This is an emotional moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or as Gethsemane means, the Garden of Crushing. Like an olive, Jesus is being squeezed in these last few hours before his arrest. I've heard it said, if you really want to know someone's heart, listen to them pray. And we discover a lot about Jesus by studying this prayer. Remember, the night began in the upper room. Then they left Mount Zion, they came down the mountain, they walked across the valley of Kidron, and they walked up the Mount of Olives to this little garden called Gethsemane. The disciples have now kicked out the fire, they've unrolled their sleeping bags, they're getting ready to sleep. And that's when Jesus walks off a short distance, and he begins to bear his heart to the Father. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Remember, Jesus had always been on a strict timetable. Three times. John 2 verse 4, 7 verse 30, and 8 verse 20, we're told his hour had not yet come. Well, here it has come. Father, the hour has come. Jesus knows that this is it. That for which he came into the world to be the sacrifice for mankind. The hour has come. It's interesting to me, Jesus refused to take his cues from people. He was never pressured by circumstances. He was never hurried into a premature maneuver. His timing was always impeccable. 
because he had set his watch to the Father's clock. You know, it's true. If you don't have a plan for how you're going to use your time, people will plan your time for you. The key to living a life that counts for Christ is not doing it all, but it's following God's call. Are we doing what the Father says for us to do when he says for us to do it? This is the key to being a good disciple. When Jesus prays to the Father that the hour has come to glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Remember the cross was for Jesus the moment of his glory. You know, we talk about a person's moment of glory. You know, your little kid picks up a football and runs it into the end zone and scores a touchdown. Oh, that was his moment of glory. What was Jesus' moment of glory? What did Jesus come into the world to accomplish? It was his obedience to the cross. It was his crucifixion. That's what brought the Father great glory. But it was after the cross that the Father glorified the Son. After his ascension, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father and was crowned with glory. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the pain because his eye was on the prize, the pleasure of his Father, the glory of his Father. It was the glory of the Father that got him through the glory of the cross. And it's the glory that gets us through the glory so many times. In verse 2, Jesus prays, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice eternal life is not so much longevity of life as it is a quality of life. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Remember, it doesn't begin when you get to heaven. An everlasting life starts the moment you open up your heart to Jesus. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Recall Jesus' final words on the cross. It is finished. It's obviously an echo of his prayer here. Jesus always finishes what he starts, which, by the way, includes his work in you. Yet let's think this through for a moment. At this point in history, were all the blind eyes healed? Were all the lame legs able to walk? Had all the sinners repented of their sins? The answer to that question is no. And yet Jesus said that he has finished the work which he had been given to do. Apparently, Jesus didn't come to do it all. Even the Son of God didn't feel like he had to do everything. Why is it you and I sometimes feel like we've got to do everything? He had some select tasks that God had given him, and Jesus was faithful to do them. He says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is now longing for home. From eternity past, he had dwelt with the Father in his glory. 
But he laid aside that eternal glory. He humbled himself as a man. He became a child of time. He became a resident of earth. But now that his mission is almost complete, he's looking forward to returning to his former glory. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Throughout Jesus' prayer, there's a beautiful harmony between the Father and the Son. What belongs to Jesus belongs to the Father and vice versa. They enjoy a seamless relationship. You know, this makes the separation that will later occur on the cross that much more momentous. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a feeling that he has never felt. Jesus continues to pray, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, On the night he was betrayed and arrested, just hours before his departure from this world, as if he didn't have enough to concern himself with, he prayed for unity among his followers. And yet when you look at the church today, fraught with schism and division and competition, you wonder what happened. If the church is the body of Christ, then we're an uncoordinated and spastic body. Early church father Augustine, he got so exasperated with the divisions that existed in his day, he wrote this, The clouds roll with thunder that the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the earth, and these frogs sit in their marsh and croak, We are the only Christians. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We can't create spiritual harmony. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, but we can work to preserve our unity and our harmony. We can avoid favoritism and cliquishness and prejudicial judgments. We can be kind and tolerant and forgiving. We can cut each other some slack. We can love. And I think it's interesting that Jesus prayed we would be one just as he and the Father are one. Notice that. That our unity would be like his unity with the Father. You see, the Godhead is a blend of unity and diversity. God is one God, but he exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons are equal, but they're different. See, our oneness should be a combination of unity and diversity. Oneness doesn't ignore our uniqueness and our distinctiveness. A people can have unity and still enjoy their diversity. 
In fact, real unity respects and is empathetic toward the very real differences that exist between us. Spiritual oneness and unity is not the denial of our differences. It's the realization that our one commonality, which is Jesus, is greater than all of our differences. When you and I stay focused on Jesus, it causes everything else to fade away. Christian unity is not synchronized swimming. Of all the Olympic sports, synchronized swimming has to be the hokiest. The hokey of the hokiest. Two women dressed alike, they look alike, they jump in the pool together at the very same time, and then they mimic each other's moves and gestures. The goal is uniformity. Whereas pairs figure skating. That's just the opposite. The teammates, they skate in tandem, but they don't try to copy each other. They're free to be themselves. They just complement each other. Pair skating is a beautiful sport. Synchronized swimming is just hokey. And this is the difference between uniformity and unity. Jesus doesn't care about uniformity. It's as hokey to him as it is to us. He prays for our unity, not our uniformity. We should celebrate our differences. We should be free to be ourselves. We are enriched by our variety and our diversity. Several times now, I have been graced by grace a couple of times, but by other Nigerian friends as well. Several times now, I have officiated Nigerian celebrations. A couple of weddings now I've done, several other different kinds of celebrations. I know God doesn't make mistakes, but several times I've told Kathy that I think I should have been born Nigerian because I love the culture. Nigerians are all about family and faith and having fun. I was born a white southerner, a long way from Lagos, but I feel a great unity with my Nigerian family. We are diverse but we are united. Understand how that works? We celebrate the diversity. A spiritual connection can bring different people together. The goal is not for us to be like Christian clones, for all, us all just to kind of walk around, you know, being like each other. We're not synchronized saints. As a matter of fact, I'm leery. Whenever I walk into a church and I look around, everybody looks just alike. I'm leery of that place. Jesus prayed for our unity, not our uniformity. And we achieve real unity by merging our differences and blending them together under the overarching goal of bringing glory to God's Son. Well, verse 12 tells us, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. All 12 disciples, they denied the Lord Jesus and they ran away, but they were kept by God's power. And they made their way back. Only one lost soul, and that was Judas. And notice here, Jesus called Judas son of perdition. And do you know the only other person in the scripture who's called by this same name? There's one other person. Do you know who it is? Judas. 
It's the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. The Antichrist in Judas were called the son of perdition. In verse 13, Jesus continues his prayer. But now I come to you, and these things I speak to the, in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice Jesus' ultimate joy, uh, his ultimate goal was to spread his joy. I like that. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just transport us to heaven the moment we were saved? That would have eliminated quite a few problems we've been having to deal with, wouldn't it? But that wasn't his desire. He wants us to struggle with the pull of this world. He wants us to struggle with temptation and opposition. It's resistance training. That's what it is. Without resistance, you don't get any stronger. As the old saying goes, we are in the world, but we're not of it. We can blend in culturally as long as we stick out spiritually. We need to be in the world, building bridges to lost people. But if we're of the world, no one will see the need to cross those bridges that we've built. We need to live for God boldly and attractively and display godly alternatives to the world's values. Here's an illustration I use all the time, but it's so true. For a boat to be useful, it has to be in the water. But let the water get into the boat and you've got problems. And so it is with the church. Likewise, the church, to be useful, it has to be in the world. But woe if the world gets into the church. That sinks our witness. In verse 16, Jesus prays for his disciples. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means to set apart or to treat as special. Why do you think we put so much emphasis on the word of God here at our church? Because this is how we're sanctified. This is how we're made the people of God. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them. Set them apart by your word. People absorbed in God's truth in the pages of the Bible will be different people and in a good way. Love will flavor their dealings. Integrity will characterize their their nature. They'll march to a different drummer. God's truth is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of this world. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And here's where we could camp For weeks on end. You sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. How did Jesus enter the world? Philippians 2 verses 5 through 10 details the attitude behind the incarnation. That Jesus humbled himself. He came in the likeness of a man and so forth. Rather than flaunt his status, he made no appeal to his reputation. Rather than flex his muscle, he served. Rather than focus on his superiority, he identified with our weaknesses. Rather than force his own will, he submitted to the will of the Father. And Jesus is praying that we too will adopt the same attitude toward life and toward others as he demonstrated. As he was sent into the world, we are sent into the world. 
verse 19. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. This is an incredible verse. Did you notice, 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed specifically for you and me. He prays for his disciples, yet future. That's you and me. That's us tonight. The unity that Jesus prays for and desires in his church, it stretches across continents and ages and generations. A man was once visiting a mental hospital where he noted the hospital was understaffed. There were only three guards on duty in charge of monitoring hundreds of dangerous inmates. The man asked the guard, he said, don't you fear these people will use their numbers and overpower you? The guard replied, no, no, lunatics never unite. We likewise need to smarten up. Hey, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. God wants us united and supportive of one another. He wants us working together in harmony. Guys, we can accomplish more together than we can apart. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. If you're walking down the street and you see a lone penny, there's a good chance you won't even bother to pick it up. But if you see a handful of pennies, or maybe a roll of pennies, you might pick those up and put them in your pocket. The point is, Christians can attract more attention in a large group than we can by ourselves. That's why it's such a powerful thing to bring a lost person into a community of believers that love each other with Jesus' love. When you're exposed to that, you'll want to learn more. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. We can only imagine the intense love the Father has for His only begotten Son. It was a love formed before the beginning of time. And yet the Father gave up His beloved Son to die in your place. He must love you too. The chapter closes. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. And Lord, we 